So we come to Joel chapter 2, a very well-known passage, verses 28 to 32. I've entitled the message simply, The Outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Last time we saw the the change from chapter 2 and verse 18, where there was this restoration of all things. There had been so much destruction. The people have repented. There was a restoration. And this week's text is very messianic and... um, and a beautiful text. It's eschatological. It's very connected with the promises of the new covenant. So, Joel 2, 28 to 32. It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. The young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants... I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. And on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem... There will be those who escape, and as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord has called. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this rich text that is before us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the the blood that has been shed to preserve this word throughout history. We thank you that it has been preserved for us and that we can look to it as coming directly from you. So give us understanding. Bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you remember chapter 1 really gives in detail this devastating locust plague that had come upon Judah. It was devastating in so many ways without really going to look at everything, but the gnawing locusts. uh, And and so there's a a call to awake drunkards the virgins, even the the priest, and to mourn, gird yourself with sackcloth. Lament, O priest. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. And so what what God has done is because of Judah's sin, God sends little mighty warriors, billions of them in the form of locusts, to devastate everything. Even the the vines where the wine would come and and, and, and the the crops were eaten up and dried up so that even the very worship of God ceased. But then chapter 2 opens up with blow a trumpet, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. And so what Joel is saying is that, that what's happened to us that we're still enduring, there's something much greater that's going to come if we do not repent. Chapter 2, verse 12, three of the most precious words in the Bible after reading that, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, and with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart, not your garments. Away with the external religion. True repentance deep in the heart is what was absolutely needed. And lo and behold, you get to chapter 2 and verse 18, and there's a turning point in the book. That's why some scholars think this was written by two different people and they put it together. There's such a turning point. Look, Look at verse 18. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land, and he will have pity on his people. 
implication is that the people had truly repented and God is bringing complete restoration. You have these uh, interesting terms here, uh, uh, rhetorical, um, rejoice, O land, and, and do not fear, beast of the field, as though a word is even coming to the land and to the beast that everything is going to be restored. And so the rains return, the early rains and the late rains. And then this unusual promise here, then I will make up to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. A profound, uh, uh, God promises the impossible. I will restore to you the years that were taken. And, and, And notice it's plural, years. And these locust invasions would come in waves year after year not limited to a, a single season. And so God makes this incredible promise, and if you didn't hear the message, I encourage you to listen to that. But, but with these wasted years, these lost years that we've experienced, fruitless years for some of us that came to Christ later in life, financial, selfish, how does He do that? He restores not by hitting the rewind button on the clock of years, but by just blessing us so full and so abundantly beyond anything we could ever think or act. Joel's prophetic perspective, brethren, is like this. If you're hiking at Yosemite or in the Saharas somewhere and you're on a long hike and you see there's a peak up there and then there's a, a peak behind it, they look very close together, but as you approach, what happens? You see that you get to the next peak and you see there's a huge valley in between the next one, which is even higher up. Joel speaks of various events. See, he sees three peaks, as it were. The very events in his day, the locust, the repentance, the restoration that was taking place, but also he, he looks ahead to events that would occur at Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we'll look at it in a moment, but Peter quotes this, our whole text, word for word from the Septuagint, but he, he quotes the whole text as an evidence of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of what was happening at Pentecost. But then that, that third peak is the great and final day of the Lord when Jesus Christ will come back. It's sort of like in the Psalms when you read the Psalms, so many of them uh, oftentimes, David's language, uh, he's writing about himself, his own trials, and, and, and so, mu- so much of the time, those are fulfilled even in Christ that would be beyond him. And so, we don't need to be confused or disturbed at the fact that, that a, 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 promise, um, a, a promise can be fulfilled in various ways. I mentioned this last time, but the Hebrew Bible has four chapters for Joel. And what what they've done is the entire third chapter is our text today. They wanted it set apart. And then what is our chapter 3 is the Hebrew Bible chapter 4. So important is this text today, brethren, is quoted or alluded to no less than nine times in the New Testament. And so um, we need to pay close attention. So we're going to unpack this under just three simple points. First of all, the first two verses, 28 and 29, the Spirit will be poured out on all people indiscriminately. It's a beautiful promise. Secondly, the day of the Lord will produce cosmic signs. The next two verses, and then the final verse, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So first of all, 28a, we see here, 
And it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Come about. Joel looks beyond his own day. He looks into the end times, as it were. And the various days of the Lord, which occur throughout history, foreshadow or are a type of that great and final day of the Lord. There's a connection here that just as the day the Lord brought judgment to those who were unfaithful and who did not repent, it is also a means of great deliverance for the people of God and a great rescue for the faithful. That reminds me of the great and final day of the Lord. It's, it's looking beyond this peak to the other peaks. Now, when we talk about the last days, and there's some certain groups of people and theologians talking about the last days, which would... And they, and they, what do they mean by that? They, they mean the seven years of tribulation or something along those lines or, or right before Jesus comes back. The last days did not begin with the Schofield Study Bible or the Rari Study Bible or the popular 1980 book, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, which popularized a lot of these things. But the last days, brethren, speak from the very death and resurrection of Christ until his second coming. So you ask yourself, does that mean we're in the last days? Yes, we are. We're in the last days, biblically speaking. Second sub-point, 28 to 29, the Spirit will be poured on all people indiscriminately. The, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon certain individuals for usually specific tasks, and when it was more of a rarity, you think of the prophets where the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. You think of the warriors, you think of uh, um, those that were used of God, the judges in the book of Judges, you think of the kings as well. Even in 1 Samuel 3, it says that you know, these situations were relatively rare. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and visions were infrequent. But a change is coming. A radical change is coming. And our text here specifically, when it talks about how it's going to be poured out on sons and daughters, right? Old men will dream dreams, young men will see visions, and even male and female servants. That's indiscriminately, isn't it? It's amazing. And so in this text, what it does is it erases all social distinctions, You see, in the ancient world, it would be those that were typically of age that would be males, that would have the money, that would kind of rule the economic status and all of that. The landowners who had land, they would rule society. But what Joel does is he explicitly rejects all such distinctions as criteria for receiving the Holy Spirit. This verb that's used here, I will pour out, means literally... Um, a, a pouring, um, it, it can even mean like, like a person just pouring out their soul before God. Kale and Dalich in their commentary say, it signifies communication in rich abundance like rainfall or a waterfall. The Spirit of God was only inward bound between the Lord and His people, but it was confined to a certain few whom God endowed as prophets with the Spirit. This limitation was to cease in the future, and really with this promise. And it's sprinkled all over the Old Testament. Isaiah 44.3, 
I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing and your descendants. Even in Ezekiel, right before Ezekiel 40, 40 to 48, that block in 39, 29, I will not hide my face from them any longer. And I, at four, I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord. Now turn back to Numbers chapter 11. This is such an important text. What Moses expresses as a wish here comes to fruition in the new covenant, doesn't it? So you see here the, um, another case for a plurality of elders here. They gather 70 elders from Israel. God says, I'm going to take some of the spirit that's on you and sprinkle it amongst those 70. And then you see there in the last few verses where, in verse 27, a young lad ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, and the attendant of Moses, from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. You see what's going on here. It's like, wait a minute, Moses, you are our prophet. You are our mediator, to speak in that old covenant sense. And what does Moses say? Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Really, in the New Covenant, the Spirit is given to so many. It's, it's like in the Old Covenant, you know, you've got sprinkles or like our June gloom that we have here where it's just like a little tiny drizzle to a torrential downpour in the New Covenant because all of God's people have the Spirit. In my devotions, I'm reading through the Gospel of John in chapter 7, that familiar text there in 737. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But what was he speaking of? The Spirit of God, which had not yet been given. So who receives the Holy Spirit? Well, we've already said sons and daughters and old men and young men and male and female. It's pretty all-encompassing, right? We can certainly say it's not animals, no matter how much you love your dog. We love our dog a lot. But there's no Holy Spirit in there. And it doesn't come upon those that reject God. Those that are stiff-arming God, those that reject God and who He is, do not receive the Spirit of God. It's upon all kinds of people who will call upon His name. Galatians 3 and verse uh, 28, perhaps Paul even has this passage here in mind. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, but you are all one in Christ. Right? Regardless of social status. Regardless of your gender. And there is only two genders. And there's lots of talk about equality in these days. This is true biblical equality, isn't it? It's, it's upon whoever will call upon the name of the Lord. In Romans chapter 10, familiar passage, I'll just turn to it for us. In verse 12 and 13, one of the other places where this is quoted, 
um, from Joel. And there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest barrier of all was knocked down and taken out of the way between Jew and Gentile. We are all one in Christ. Ephesians 2, the latter part of that book, talks about the one, 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 that, that, that everything's been knocked down, the wall's been, been taken out of the way by his cross. Well, Peter quotes these verses, as I said earlier, um, which helps us because it helps us really to interpret this, that if, if Peter quotes it in his Pentecost sermon, it should be pretty unmistakable of how to apply it. The whole Christian community after the ascension of Christ was how many people? 120 people, right? And early in chapter Acts chapter 1. In fact, just turn to Acts briefly. Jesus is ascended, verse 8. We see in verse 14 of chapter 1, they were of one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her brothers. And so there's 120 gathered at that time. And chapter 2 in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they all were together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house there where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing amongst themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. How did they speak in other tongues? First of all, this is not gibberish. They were speaking other foreign languages, okay? Supernaturally. It was not that blah, 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 you know, it was not that. Um, and they were given that ability. Well, Peter delivers a sermon between chapter 2 and verse 14 to uh, uh, verse 40, and then uh, the, to this audience of a large group of men, uh, and, and he quotes in detail from the Septuagint, but if you look at verse 16 all the way to 21, that is a direct quote from our text that is put there. Furthermore, later he expounds Psalm 16, right, which is later in the sermon. And then what happens as a result of Peter's message? 3,000 souls are saved. They were pierced to the heart. Brethren, what must we do? The God, just by His Holy Spirit, convicted them and awakened them. In verse 37 and 38, Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We we're looking forward to having a baptism in light of uh, this passage uh, today. Uh, but in God's providence, Charles has a, a stomach bug and it's in his whole family. And he was still going to come. He said, I'm going to stay home for prayer meeting and rest, but I'll be there. And I'm like, you probably shouldn't if it's a virus. And especially with all the COVID that's uh, our little outbreaks that we've been having uh, here. But notice with me, prophecy comes along with the Holy Spirit. It's supernatural revelation in the form of dreams, in the form of visions. Uh, and really what's being said, a new age has come. 
The Holy Spirit being poured out upon all of God's people. It's remarkable. And then you see throughout Acts, even as you read through the book of Acts, tongues and supernatural events become rarer and rarer. But they do occur, and it's usually with this. At other times in the book of Acts, such as the Gentiles being added to the church of God, and also the Samaritans when they are, these were authenticating signs that authenticated the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon those events. You see it in chapter 8. You see it in chapter 19. Probably the best well-known is Cornelius' house in Acts 10. Let me read these last few verses, 44 to 47. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those that were listening to the message, a Gentile household. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. Were the circumcised? Were the Jews? How are these Gentiles getting our spirit, right? So God is doing something here. And so they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized. So again, partial fulfillment of this passage in Joel there in Acts 2 and and partially fulfilled at Pentecost, but it'll be fully consummated at the second coming of Jesus Christ, which could happen at any time. Now, just very practically, and a quick little survey of the the New Testament, how is the Holy Spirit manifested in us? Maybe you speak in tongues in your prayer closet. Um, I don't know. But what are some ways that the Spirit is manifested. Well, first of all, we receive the Spirit at conversion, right? Not before, not after you've walked with the Lord for a year and you've you've done good enough, and then you get the Spirit. It is at conversion. And it says in Acts 2, again, to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. Baptism and regeneration. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Also, how is it manifested? The fruits of the Spirit. We are now enabled to have some perfect self-control? No, but much more self-control than when we were outside of Christ. The deeds of the flesh being weak and the fruit of the Spirit blossoming in our lives over the course of time. But also, discernment and illumination, right? The Spirit enables us to do that. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, the natural man, the one who does not have the Spirit, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The Spirit helps us to pray. You ever just get on your knees and begin to pray and you hit a wall? I mean, the promise in Romans 8 is beautiful in the same way the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not even know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep 
for words. Also, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1. In Him, after listening to the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed with Him, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Given as a pledge for that last day. Remember that word when we went through Ephesians? It's like an engagement ring. It's a promise that He gives us. How about this? We're given actual spiritual gifts by which we can serve one another and serve the Lord. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 6. And there are a variety of gifts, the same God who works in all these things, in all persons, but to each one was given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Notice that. What does that mean? It's for the benefit of the common good, the community, the covenant community. It's, it's not for just you and your own edification. Or Peter's passage is even more clear in chapter 4. Each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And then, of course, as you know, there's speaking gifts and there's serving gifts. I mean, Peter's probably the most succinct. He says, whoever speaks to do so speaking the utterances of God, whoever serves to do so with the strength that God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory forever. So serving gifts, right, is probably the most common. There are some, both of our interns are out sick today, but, uh, um, you know, there, there's, there's, you know, there's some that are given to speaking gifts and, and even others, but most are serving gifts, and there's all a variety of those serving gifts, and, and even here at GBC, I mean, there's, there's been pleas that have gone out recently that we need help in various areas, and, and you know, it's, it's like when we interview new members, we, and this, do you know, well, like, what area would you like to serve in, or have you served in? I don't know, I just I want to be available. Just listen, you'll hear, please. The nursery is needing to be staffed. We need people to help with lockup or setup. All you have to do is just listen and have a spirit of willingness to want to serve God because He's worthy, isn't He? He's worthy of all praise. The filling of the Holy Spirit. Um, we're told to be filled with the Holy Spirit, John 14, 17. The Spirit of truth whom the Lord, who the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him but you know Him because He abides in you. The leading of the Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit that gives us success and evangelism as well. The list could go on and on. But I want to make it very clear that supernatural, revelatory gifts of prophecy are done away with. Why? Because in these last days, He's spoken to us in His Son and in the written Word of God. So if somebody comes up to you and says, you know, I was praying this morning and God gave me a word. And he, he, he wanted me to just tell you, you should change colleges and pursue this or move there away with such things. Just plug your ears. <laughs> those types of gifts, those revelatory gifts were authenticating gifts to validate the coming of the Spirit of God. So, the indiscriminate outpouring, that was our longest point. Secondly, 30 and 31, the day of the Lord will produce great cosmic signs. It's pretty incredible. If you look here, I'll display wonders in the sky. Blood and fire and columns of smoke. 
The sun will be turned into darkness. It sounds like a horror movie in a sense, doesn't it? God's presence is manifested in judgment. Dillard in his commentary says, Cosmic convolutions accompany the day of Yahweh. The entire created order reacts to the presence of the divine warrior that comes. Kylan Dalish, judgment upon all the nations goes side by side with the outpouring of the Spirit. The wonders which God will give in the heavens and on the earth are forerunners to judgment. Some of these terms here, right? The darkness and the, the moon turning into blood reminds us of those plagues of Egypt, right? We saw that earlier, some of the things that, that occurred. Even the locusts. And so these plagues in Egypt where the, the Nile was turned to blood and then it hailed fire. These were catastrophic events surrounding, sorry, catastrophic effects surrounding cataclysmic events. I thought that was a little nice one-liner. Catastrophic effects surrounding cataclysmic events. You think of all those other times, which the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, all those were like forerunners pointing to this great and final day. Even when Jesus died on the cross, right? The, the or before he died, rather, the last three hours of the cross, darkness all around the world. So God allows these events to also awaken. And sure enough, um, awaken it did. Peter quotes this text, uh, or when Peter quotes this text in Acts 2, Luke does not record events like this in the sky. Like, oh, it got dark right before the 3,000 got saved or you know he doesn't record any of that and it's important for us to remember the eschatological truth of the already and the not yet right the pouring of the spirit and the second coming are huge events peter includes the whole of this text of joel to validate the outpouring of the holy spirit such a huge event is worthy to take note of. This is the inbreaking of the last days. Jesus has just ascended. He's died, he rose, he's ascended to the right hand of God. It's the inbreaking of the last days, but it's not quite the final second coming, right? And so it's the already and the not yet. Now, dispensationalism would say that what happened at Pentecost did not fulfill Joel's prophecy at all. Um, they would say that the sun wasn't darkened, the moon didn't turn to blood, therefore it's only uh, Peter references as an illustration of what would come in the future. No, that's why you have to believe the already and the not yet, the multiple fulfillments as it were. <clears throat> Peter says in his book, Second <clears throat> Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away and the roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. This idea of the moon turned to blood, you see that in um, the sixth seal in the book of Revelation, six, chapter 6, verse 12. He broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth, made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. Jesus, Mark 13 uh, Matthew 24, these, uh, where, where he's sharing what will take place when his, with his second coming. And he uses similar language. Uh, he says in Matthew 24, 29, 
But immediately after the tribulation in those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Similar language pointing to the same event. Well, what do you make of these Jews that hear this Pentecost sermon that rejected Christ, right? Um, Peter even gets so direct as to say, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men by putting him to death. They did not recognize Messiah. And then it says later in chapter, verse 40, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, be saved from this perverse generation those that reject God. So although the day of the Lord is a day when God's wrath will be poured out, it's also a day of rescue. It's also a day of mercy for those that will call upon the name of the Lord. And that's verse 32, our last point. It will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, for there will be those who escape as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. God provides safety. He provides rescue. He provides salvation for the true remnant of God. This appears to be, verse 32, a summary statement that that Joel is giving here, a a statement of um, great hope. This idea will be delivered means to escape, as if by slipperiness, to release, to deliver, to rescue. It's used many times in the Old Testament, even if you remember the angel is telling Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? He he says, when he had brought them outside, he says, escape for your life! Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains. Be delivered. It's the same word here, that they will be delivered also used of when Saul tried to pin David to a wall with a spear, but he slipped out of Saul's presence and, and he struck the spear to the wall and David fled and escaped that night. God provides safety for Christians and they escape God's wrath. Psalm 46, God is a refuge and strength, a very present time of help. Christians are like those that that enter Noah's Ark in the midst of the judgment, the whole earth being judged with the flood, but we're in the safety of the Ark. That's where the true remnant is. So what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Hey, Lord. Hey, what's up? Nice. You know, no, it's none of that. It's calling upon Him with sincerity of heart, but understanding His true attributes and His character. It's it's a calling with an acknowledgement that He is the only way of rescue and deliverance. He is our only hope of salvation. Remember the jailer in Acts 16, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. The psalmist says in Psalm 50, Call upon me in the day of trouble and I shall rescue you and you will honor me. Well, what a great invitation this is. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. We know that if anyone calls upon the name of the Lord, 
they have first been effectually called by the Holy Spirit. Remember our Sunday school study in the Order Salutis? The effectual calling? That comes first. We have an a inability to realize our own need until our eyes have been opened, until we've been uh, regenerated. It says in John 6.44, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him, literally drags him, because we are rebels, we are anti-God lovers, we are going after our own way. We have to be changed from the inside out. So we see the beauty of the sovereignty of God. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord, but we know it will only be those whom the Lord has first quickened, and then they will call out to him. He's a God of great mercy. It's a great invitation. We should have great hope for all of our unsaved family members and friends. Romans 8, 29, for those whom the Lord foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these who he called, he also justified. And these who he justified, he also glorified. Notice the aorist tense there, the past tense. It's, it's as good as done. If you've been predestined and called and justified, you will be glorified. You can take it to the bank. The New Testament applies this promise um, to believing Gentiles as well as Jews. Um, we already read from Romans 10, 13, even in Acts 2, we see that. So this call is not limited to the ultra-reformed, to the Reformed Baptist, um, or, or anyone of high social ranking. It's who shall ever call, and it's indiscriminate. Male, female, slave, free, it's beautiful, it's a, it's a glorious open invitation there's an ancient Jewish morning prayer that the men would say that, that I think is full of arrogance, but uh, it, would, it went like this. I thank you, God, that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. <laughs> I'm a Jewish man, right? I've got, so away with such thinking. Indiscriminate beauty. Well, we have true biblical equality here. Well, in conclusion... Can you hear the great invitation? Have you heard the great invitation from the Lord? Have you been quickened by the Holy Spirit? I want to end with just uh, this passage from Ezekiel 36, which really is a parallel passage. You can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. Verse 24 to 27 first. Glorious promise. I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from the lands. I will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all the filthiness and from all of your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe all of my ordinances. Who's doing the work here? God is, right? God is the one that's doing this. He is the author of our salvation. And then look at the result of this, 28 and 30. You have really a picture of 
the idea of he's our God, we're his people, that we're saved, and that we even bear fruit. Look at it, verse 28. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all uncleanness, and I will call for the grain to multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you. Verse 30, I will multiply the fruit of the tree and produce a field so that you will not receive disgrace and famine among the nations. And a brief quote from Charles Spurgeon, we must call on the one true God, not on any idol or on an, an image or an impression in our minds. We must call on the living God, call on him who reveals himself in the Bible and call on him who reveals himself in his person the person of his dear son, for whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He is a suitable Savior for all who will call upon him, not only in that initial coming to Christ, right? But he's our great high priest that we can go to again and again and again and again and again and not wear his patience out. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the outpouring of the Spirit. Thank you for the great work that you did in Acts 2 and what you continue to do these last 2,000 years. We look forward with great anticipation to that great and final day of salvation and rescue. But also, Lord, on the other hand, that day of judgment, we see the wickedness in our land. We see the senseless slaughter of the unborn. We see the perversion of gender, confusion, and all of that. It's going on in our day. I see the wickedness, Lord, and, and surely you, you, your patience is immeasurable. We ask, Lord, even for our own nation here, the, our own people, that in your wrath you might remember mercy, that you might send revival yet again. Lord, we pray for the turmoil that's going on in our world with hyperinflation and social unrest and uh, food crisis. Um, Lord, there's so much that's going on in this world. We know that you're sovereign and we know that you're a good God. Care for your people. Be with the persecuted church. Be with those that are in chains, oh God. Lord, help us to have compassion upon the lost among us as we would go to our workplace, as we would uh, move about this next week, Lord, that we would have the eyes of Christ as we look upon the lost. We, that you would loosen our tongue, that we would go and want to share the good news of the gospel even though so many are hardened and so many have hard hearts and a stiff arm you go lord that that would not be a catalyst for us to go to our corner and to be quiet loosen our lips bless our outreaches have mercy on our family that it's unsaved we ask all of this in jesus name amen